I'm Ed Nersessian, director of the Helix Center. Today's program is on French Surrealism, a revolution of the mind. It was organized uh, by Anne-Marie Levine, who is sitting there, and who's also agreed to take charge of the program we will be developing during the next year, which will be more uh, oriented towards literature and the humanities, in addition to the usual science programs that we do. Uh, just a few words I would say about Anne-Marie before she introduces the rest of the panelists. Anne-Marie is a poet and visual artist who began writing while touring as a concert pianist. She's the author of three books of poetry, Euphorbia, Bus Ride to a Blue Movie, and Oral History, and is working on an artist book called Reculer pour mieux sauter. Her work also appears in various journals and anthologies, such as Poetry After 9-11, Literature as Meaning, and Literature After 9-11. She's published essays on Gertrude, Stein, Gertrude Stein's politics on trauma and art, and on context, and has received grants from the NYFA, Puffin and Wogelstein Foundations for her work. She occasionally performs solo theater pieces based on her poems. She is as well a maker of box art, miniature paintings on wood, and digital prints exhibited throughout the country. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Thank you, and welcome. We're going to each talk for 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll have some conversation amongst ourselves, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. And I'm going to start with a sort of introduction. It seems to me my task today is to provide some historical background, context, the names you'll be hearing, and some sense of the meaning of the surrealist movement, the raison d'etre for our choice of subject today. The ability to remain in a state of expectation and openness to chance is the sine qua non of the surrealist poetic experience. And the second quote says, that the central project of surrealism is the resolution of the contradiction between dream and reality. The movement called Surrealism is 90 years old this year. It emerged in 1924 out of French poet André Breton's first manifesto and became arguably the most important artistic movement of the 20th century, global in its reach and becoming, I think, part of our collective unconscious. It has influenced advertising, images, features of our daily life that we don't even realize reach back to the surrealist aesthetic. More about this during the program. Perhaps the best indication of surrealism's influence is the fact that the word itself has become part of everyday language. In the visual arts in particular, all one has to do to gauge surrealism's impact is list the names of those who were directly involved in or deeply influenced by surrealism. Giorgio de Chirico, Francis Picabia, Pablo Picasso, Marcel Duchamp, Hans Arp, André Masson, Max Ernst, Man Ray, Salvador Dali, Juan Miro, Luis Bonuel, Alberto Giacometti, René Magritte, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Yves Tanguy, Archil Gorky, and Joseph Cornell, to name a few. You may not know, though, that surrealism began as a literary movement led by André Breton, with some scorn for the visual and the oral. He only accepted visual art somewhat later when he acknowledged that the visual is the most powerful of the senses. 
Painters from all around the world flocked to join the movement and are probably better known to you than the poets, the originators, some of whom I should thus name. For example, Breton himself, always the driving force, Philippe Soupeau, Louis Aragon, Antonin Artaud, René Crevel, Robert Desnos, Paul Eloire, Michel Léris, Benjamin Perret, René Char, and Tristan Sara, who was one of the founders of the Dada movement, which directly preceded the Surrealist movement. So although based in France, Surrealism was an international movement. But Surrealism became a movement because it pursued principles that led from the mainly destructive to the constructive, from theory to practice. It intended to open up something buzzing or dinging? No. It intended to open up areas of thought beyond reality and reason. Indeed, it intended to become a way of life. As I said, Surrealism originated as a literary movement that experimented with a new mode of expression called automatic writing, which sought to release the unbridled imagination of the unconscious. Surrealism became an international intellectual and political movement. Breton, a trained psychiatrist, along with French poets Aragon, Éloire, and Soupeau, were influenced by the psychological theories and dream studies of Sigmund Freud and the political ideas of Karl Marx. Using Freudian methods of free association, their poetry and prose drew upon the private world of the mind, traditionally restricted by reason and societal limitations, to produce surprising, unexpected imagery. The cerebral and irrational tenets of surrealism find their ancestry in the clever and whimsical disregard for tradition fostered by Dadaism a decade earlier. So the organized surrealist movement in Europe dissolved with the onset of World War II. Uh, Breton, Dali, Ernst Masson, and others, including the Chilean artist Mata, left Europe for New York. The movement found renewal in the United States at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery, Art of the Century, and at the, at the Julien Lévy Gallery. In 1940, Breton organized the fourth international surrealist exhibition in Mexico City, which included the Mexicans Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Surrealism's surprising imagery, deep symbolism, refined painting techniques, and disdain for convention influenced later generations of artists as well, including Joseph Cornell and Arsho Gorky, whose work formed a sort of link between surrealism and the later abstract expressionism. Breton's manifestos speak to the surrealist methodology, the use of techniques such as automatic writing, self-induced hallucinations, word games like the exquisite corpse, you may hear more about that later, to make manifest repressed mental activities. The second manifesto lays out the surrealist view of reality and expresses the surrealist desire to open the vistas of the arts through the close observation of the dream state and the free play of thought. New vistas of artistic imagery and activity were opened up by surrealism, so much so that it completely altered the popular notion of what art is. As I said, perhaps the best indication of surrealism's influence is simply the fact that the word itself has become a part of everyday language. And I'll end by telling you of an event which took place in New York City way after World War II, probably in the 80s. Someone put together a panel on surrealism with the title what, if anything, does surrealism mean to us today? Or does surrealism have any relevance today? Something like that. The best answer, I think, was American sculptor David Hares. 
He had been associated with the French surrealist painters and poets in New York. He said, it keeps open that hole in our heads, letting in sunshine and other pleasant surprises. And then I thought I would just read you one, and it's called I've Told You. I've told you for the clouds, told you for the ocean's tree, for each wave, for birds in leaves, for the small stones of sound, for the familiar hands, for the eye becoming face or landscape, and sleep restores color to the sky for the whole night consumed, for the grill work of roads, for the window opened for a forehead bared. I've told you for your thoughts, your words, every caress, every confidence survives. And then in French, Je te l'ai dit pour les nuages, je te l'ai dit pour l'arbre de la mer, pour chaque vague, pour les oiseaux dans les feuilles, pour les cailloux du bruit, pour les mains familières, pour l'œil qui devient visage ou paysage. Et le sommeil lui rend le ciel de sa couleur pour toute la nuit bu, pour la grille des routes, pour la fenêtre ouverte, pour un front découvert. Je te l'ai dit pour tes pensées, pour tes paroles. Toute caresse, toute confiance se survivent. Anne-Marie mentioned uh, the, the confluence of early surrealism and Sigmund Freud, and I'd like to spend a little more time talking about that. Um, this is called The Doctor is Unconscious, Surrealism's Freudian Slips. Let's begin with an appropriately Freudian question. What does surrealism want? If you ask an American, it wants to be an avant-garde art movement. For your average Frenchman, it wants to revolutionize literature. But to André Breton, its founder and prime theorist, surrealism wanted first and foremost to be a science. Here's how Breton defined surrealism in 1924 in the first manifesto. Psychic automatism in its pure state by which one proposes to express verbally, by means of the written word, or in any other manner, the actual functioning of thought. What Breton was aiming for, in other words, was not a radical new artistic or literary technique, but nothing less than a roadmap of the mind. Art and poetry were not ends in themselves, but means to explore the hidden byways of human consciousness. Now let's jump back a decade. The year is 1913. Breton is 17 years old, and like most young men, he has to choose a career. His parents, like all parents, want him to choose something prestigious, naval officer or engineer. But young André will have none of this. So for lack of better, and because he thinks it will afford him the most free time, he opts for medical school. Medical school. The following year the war comes, and Breton, on the basis of not much training at all, is sent to the front as a medical orderly. By 1916, Breton has been assigned to the Neuropsychiatric Center at Saint-Dizier, and it is there that he first encounters psychiatric medicine, particularly the theories of Sigmund Freud. Now let's recall that in France at that time, Freud was considered either cutting edge or a crackpot when he was considered at all. Indeed, Freud's writings were still five years away from being translated into French, and Breton learned of them only secondhand. Nonetheless, he became a passionate admirer. In the 1924 manifesto, he went out of his way to give, quote, 
thanks to the discoveries of Sigmund Freud, who very rightly brought his critical faculties to bear upon the dream. The importance of this is revealed a few pages later, when Breton formulates one of surrealism's guiding principles as the resolution of these two states, dream and reality, which are seemingly so contradictory into a kind of absolute reality or surreality. Medicine, in other words, and specifically psychoanalysis, were part of surrealism's DNA from the very start. It was also in Saint-Dizier that Breton first made the connection, fundamental to surrealism, between poetry and mental illness. Breton's rounds at the psychiatric center consisted in interviewing patients suffering from that new category of wartime trauma, shell shock. This was no mere exercise. If the interviewing physician thought you were simply trying to avoid combat duty, you could be imprisoned or shot. For Breton, however, the medical legal aspects of these interviews were unimportant. What excited him were the unusual phrasings his patients used. To his friend Theodore Frankel, another medical student, he raved about the astonishing images that emerged from these conversations on a higher plane than those that would occur to us. Frankel, of a more sardonic bent, remarked that Breton, in his nutcase hospital, is moved and horrified to see patients who are better poets than he is. <laughs> this is a good place to highlight one fundamental difference between the science of psychoanalysis and the proto-science of surrealism. Where Freud and his followers looked to the patient's discourse as a guide for treatment and cure, Breton's interest lay purely in the manifest content, and the stranger, the better. The last thing he wanted was to reintegrate the Annalisand into society. We can therefore consider it a boon to patients everywhere that whatever interest André Breton might have had in practicing medicine ended with the war. <laughs> Instead, he took away from his experiences a lifelong fascination with the resources of the unconscious and with modes of expression that were unlike anything the rational mind could produce. This fascination soon led to the exploration of automatic writing or writing without conscious control. Here's how Breton later described his discovery of it. Completely occupied as I still was with Freud at that time, I resolved to obtain for myself a monologue spoken as rapidly as possible without any intervention on the part of the critical faculties, which was, as closely as possible, akin to spoken thought. The first sustained automatic text was The Magnetic Fields, which Breton wrote in collaboration with the poet Philippe Soupeau in 1919. The text purports to be generated strictly without conscious intervention, though Breton, ever the writer, couldn't resist making some stylistic revisions before publication. Here's a sample. Prisoners of drops of water, we are but perpetual animals. Stiff stems of Suzanne, uselessness above all village of flavors with a lobster church. The world that writes 365 in Arabic characters has learned to multiply it by a two-figure number. God the Father's will to grandeur does not in France exceed 4,810 meters height above sea level, and so on. <laughs> the Magnetic Fields is essentially a book-length prose poem. Breton, however, considered it much more than a volume of poetry. For him, it was a major advancement to the psychoanalytic reading of literature. He sent a signed copy to Freud in Vienna, expecting the elder, elder analyst to hail him as a pioneering colleague, but no such response was forthcoming. Undaunted, Breton made another overture in the fall of 1921 when he and his bride traveled to Vienna for their honeymoon. Hoping to interview the father of psychoanalysis, Breton found himself turning around Freud's building for several days, too shy to knock. When the interview finally did occur, it was a bitter disappointment. 
Freud politely confessed that he didn't really get modern poetry and didn't see what his young visitor's work had to do with him. Breton's wife, Simone, recalled that he returned from the meeting so disillusioned that he refused to talk about it. Soon afterward, he vented his spleen by publishing an account of the interview in which he described Dr. Freud as a little old man with no style who receives clients in a shabby office worthy of the neighborhood GP. This was not Breton's last contact with Freud. In 1932, the two men had a minor epistolary tiff over a critique Breton had made suggesting that Freud had appropriated someone else's discovery as his own. Over several letters, Freud meticulously explained away the misunderstanding, then ended their exchange with, and now a confession. Although I have received many testimonies of the interest you and your friends show for my research, I am not able to clarify for myself what surrealism is and what it wants. That question again. Perhaps I am not destined to understand it, I who am so distant from art. Breton later published the correspondence, showing that Freud might not, might not have understood art, but he recognized a slight against his professional integrity when he saw one. Nor was the magnetic, the magnetic field's surrealism's sole engagement with the psychoanalytic discourse. Among many other examples, let me mention two. The Immaculate Conception, which Breton wrote with the surrealist poet Paul Eluard in 1930, and Salvador Dali's theory of paranoia criticism. The Immaculate Conception traces human life from conception to death using a variety of literary conceits. In the most striking chapter, The Possessions, the authors simulate various forms of mental illness, acute mania, general paralysis, dementia precox, and so on. This in an effort, as Breton put it, to resolve the antinomy between reason and madness. Here's the first sentence of Dementia Precox. The woman here with an arm on her head, pebbled with pralines, which leave here without anyone having a clear idea because it is a bit more into the noon here, while leaving the laugh through the teeth, which retreats across the palate of the denaiads, which I caress with my tongue, without thinking that the day of God has arrived, music forward of the little girl's weeping seeds, whom one watches without seeing them weep, by the hand of the graces on the fourth floor window with the cat's mignonette, which the catapult took from behind on a holiday. Period. As for paranoia criticism, Salvador Dali had joined Surrealism in 1929 and lost no time in establishing himself as its master showman. In 1932, recognizing that automatic writing had more or less run its course, he devised a new technique of mental exploration for the group. Partly inspired by Jacques Lacan's doctoral thesis on paranoid psychosis, paranoia criticism was defined by its creator as a spontaneous method of irrational knowledge based on the critical and systematic objectification of delirious associations and interpretations, or in non-Dali language, a means of understanding one object by freely associating it with others, no matter how unrelated. The Eureka example was an image that Dali at first thought was effaced by Picasso, but which he then realized was actually a photograph of an African hut turned sideways. The revelation being that both these realities existed in the same image much like dream condensation. It was also Dali who gave Freud at least a partial answer to his question of what surrealism was about. In 1938, by which time he, Dali had been drummed out of the movement, he visited the elderly analyst in London, hoping, as had Breton 20 years earlier, to impress Freud as a major theorist in his own right, Dali expounded his ideas on paranoia while Freud stared on in silence. Before his imperturbable indifference, Dali later wrote, 
My voice became involuntarily sharper and more insistent. Then, continuing to stare at me with a fixity in which his whole being seemed to converge, Freud exclaimed, addressing Stefan Zweig, I have never seen a more complete example of a Spaniard. What a fanatic! <laughs> From Breton's jealous viewpoint, the visit was bad enough. But what really ground his gears was the interest Freud finally seemed to be showing in surrealism after all his fruitless attempts. And indeed, Freud wrote to Zweig that before meeting Dali, I was inclined to look upon surrealists who have apparently chosen me as their patron saint as absolute, or let us say 95% like alcohol, cranks. The young Spaniard, however, with his candid, fanatical eyes and his undeniable technical mastery has made me reconsider my opinion. This was Freud's last contact with the Surrealists and his final word on a movement that, since its inception, had pursued him like an autograph hound for his seal of approval. Still, it would be misleading to take Surrealism's interactions with psychoanalysis as merely the grandiose delusions of young admirers. While Surrealism's claims to being a full-fledged science might be open to debate, and its understanding of certain mental conditions a bit naive, its insights into the permeability of waking life and dreams, and its exploration of the mind's hidden language prefigure attitudes later taken by mainstream psychiatry. Perhaps more significantly, as several have pointed out, the Surrealists demonstrated a compassion for the mentally ill that was hardly common in their day, and that long predates the anti-psychiatric writings of R.D. Lang and David Cooper. And they were decades ahead of Michel Foucault in denouncing the normative and repressive aspects of psychiatry as it was sometimes practiced at the time. So while poetry and painting have taken center stage in our appreciation of surrealism, and deservedly so, we should not forget that surrealist literature and art were made possible by the movement's early, lifelong, and passionate engagement with the ever-elusive functioning of thought. Thank you. This is a, this is a narration. The young woman who just entered, we're talking about a cafe, everything takes place in the cafe. She appeared to be swathed in mist, clothed in fire. Everything seemed colorless and frozen next to this complexion, imagined in perfect concord between rust and green, ancient Egypt, a tiny unforgettable fern climbing the inside wall of an ancient well, the deepest, most somber, and most extensive of all those I've ever leaned over. And this goes on. The young woman, and you notice the repetition, like in the poem that Anne-Marie read, the repetition, or, or the young woman who just added, was writing. She'd also been writing the evening before. And I'd already agreeably supposed very quickly she might have been writing to me. And I found myself awaiting her letter. Naturally, nothing. But this room, still the cafe, fully lit, was free of any other presence. A last wave had swept away my friends to whom I was still talking. This young woman who just entered was just about to reappear in the street where I was waiting for her without being seen, in the street. And then they're going to go to Les Alva marketplace uh, in Paris. The face I'd feared in a frenzy never to see again was there and so close turned toward me that its smile in that moment leaves me even today with the memory of a squirrel holding a green hazelnut hair and a bright downpour upon flowering chestnut trees. She tells me she's written me. This letter just now was destined for me. And she was surprised no one had given it to me. And she rapidly said farewell to me, giving me a rendezvous for that same evening at midnight. So of course, it happens to be you know, first in a cafe, then at midnight, then in Le Al at 2 in the morning. 
I shall glide over the tumultuous hours that ensued. It's two in the morning when we leave the Cafe of the Birds. My self-confidence undergoes a peculiar crisis, and you will see in everything I'm going to read, which is mostly about love and love poems, there's always this doubt at the middle. There's always this un imbalance. What am I capable of, after all? This is Breton. And what shall I do now so as not to be unworthy of such a fate? I walk ahead automatically in a great clank of gates being closed. To love, to find once more the lost grace of the first moment when one is in love. All sorts of defenses spring up around me. Bright laughter springing up from the years fast to finish sobbing under the great beating of gray wings of an uncertain spring night. Who goes with me in this hour in Paris without leading me, and whom, moreover, I am not leading? I never remember having felt in my life such a great weakness. I almost lose sight of myself. I seem to have been carried away in my turn. Perhaps it would suddenly become impossible to take a step, perhaps without the help of an arm which has just taken my own, recalling me to real life while enlightening me with its pressure about the shape of a breast. Come now, it's only in fairy tales that doubt cannot sneak in and see you. This is, this is what is sneaking in now, strongly. It's never a question of slipping on some fruit peeling. I see bad and good in all their native state, the bad winning out with all the ease of suffering. Life is slow, and man scarcely knows how to play it. Who is going with me? Who is preceding me tonight once again? There would still be time to turn back. So he didn't turn back, but uh, it was always plagued by doubts. And I wanted to read you just one poem of Breton, which seems to me to sum up surrealism in its aesthetic sense in all the wonderful ways. I'll read it to you in English, but tell you that it's about a pun on mirror and glass and the word mal, which means, the way it sounds, mal means evil, and also means spelled differently, trunk. So this poem is about upside-downness, it's about contraries, it's about hot and cold, and it's finally a very optimistic poem, because surrealism, in its basic sense, was optimistic, despite all the, the doubts and love. And this is called They Tell Me. They tell me that over there the beaches are black from the lava running to the sea, stretched out at the foot of a great peak smoking the snow under a second sun of wild canaries. You can already hear the hiss of the waves, second sun. And in French, that goes, sous un second soleil de serein sauvage. You already hear the waves coming in, the lava is, of course, black, and the beach is white, and so on. So what is this far-off land seeming to take its light from your life? It trembles very real at the tip of your lashes, sweet to your carnation like an intangible linen freshly pulled from the half-open half trunk of the ages. Trunk, of course, being mal, but then you get to play on the word trunk because it's the trunk of the body. Behind you, casting its last somber fires between your legs, the earth of the lost paradise, glass of shadows, mirror of love, and lower towards your arms opening on the proof by springtime of afterwards, of evils not existing, all the flowering apple tree of the sea. So you feel the appleness, you know, the apple, but restored somehow on the tree and the land. And that to me is the way that surrealist poetry works. I wanted to read you um, two poems by Eluard, and Marie read you one poem. I want to read you a famous one because of its first line. It's called, The Earth is Blue Like an Orange. And if you've read Julia Kristeva, she goes on and on about how blue and orange go together. 
I think that the love in all these poems undoes any problem of logic. Of course, it's illogical, and therefore, it makes sense surrealistically. The earth is blue like an orange. Never an error. Words do not lie. They no longer supply what to sing with. It's up to kisses to get along, mad ones and lovers. She, her wedding mouth, all secrets, all smiles, and what indulgent clothing. She actually looks quite naked. The wasps are flowering green. Dawn is placing around its neck its necklace of windows. Wings cover up the leaves. You have all the solar joys, all sunshine on the earth, on the paths of your loveliness. And one more orange poem, because he was haunted by this color, enormously visual, this whole movement. Your hair of oranges in the emptiness of the world, in the emptiness of window panes, heavy with silence and shadow where my bare hands seek all your reflections. Illusory is the shape of your heart, and your love is like my lost desire. Oh, amber sighs, dreams, gazes. But you've not always been with me. My memory is still darkened from having seen you come and go. Time uses words like love. The, the stress of the monosyllables, they're very great stylists, these surrealists. I read you one last one from Eluard called A Woman in Love. She's standing on my eyelids, and her hair mingles with mine. She has the shape of my hands. She has the color of my eyes. She dissolves into my shadow like a stone against the sky. Her eyes are always open, and she doesn't let me sleep. Her dreams in daylight cause the suns to drift away, make me laugh, weep, and laugh, speak, when I have nothing to say. So the, the way the poems sort of dissolve into nothingness at, at the end, I think, is very grand. Uh, finally, my favorite poet in the world, Claude René Shaw, who is a great resistance poet, but also a surrealist in the beginning and, in a sense, all the way through. This is what William Cullis Williams said of him. René Char, you are a poet who believes in the power of beauty to right all wrongs. I believe it also. So I will read you two or three very short poems by Char, and then one slightly longer one. And uh, in all the poems, you, you see the smallness. Everything is about how the simplest things become meaningful. The basket weavers love. I loved you. I loved your face, a spring furrowed by storm, and the emblem of your domain enclosing my kiss. Some put their trust in a round imagination. Just going is enough for me. I brought back from despair so small a basket, my love. They wove it a willow. And another very short one. This is about dreaming, since we're in the Psychoanalytic Institute. I thought I had to do something about dream. This is called Shortcut. The hill he has served so well descends torrential at his back. Poor tongues salute him. The mules in the meadow welcome him. The gully's rose-hued face turns toward him twice the waters of its mirror. Meanness sleeps. He is as he dreamt himself to be. And this one, very, very short, called Unbending Prayer, seems to have been very powerful, and we have a lot of friends who want to use it in their sermons and their this and that. Uh, it's how the small becomes infinitely large. It's called unbending prayer. Preserve for us rebellion, lightning, the illusory agreement, a laugh for the trophy slipped from our hands, even the whole lengthy burden that follows, whose difficulty leads us to a new rebellion. Preserve for us fate and the primrose. And the last one from wonderful Honeshaw, because of whom I moved me and my whole family to France, 
this one is called Annals Fest, which means it's a sort of, uh, it's a tradition of remembering something like a memorial always. And to me, this is the height of tragic love poetry that the surrealists are in and were in and still are in, in my view. Summer was singing on its favorite rock when you appeared to me. Summer was singing a part as we who were silence, sympathy, sorrowful freedom, with sea still more than the sea whose long blue spade was playing at our feet. Summer was singing and your heart swam far from it. I embraced your courage, heard your confusion, rode along the absolute of waves toward those high peaks of foam where virtues sail, murderous to hands bearing our houses. We were not credulous, we were surrounded. The years passed by, the storms died down, the world went its way. I suffered to think it was your heart which no longer perceived me. I loved you. In my absence of visage and my emptiness of joy, I loved you, changing in every way, faithful to you. So you see at the end, so it's changing but faithful. That whole contrary excitement on which surrealism in its aesthetics is built comes out in everything you read, always. Thank you. Up to you. Seventh inning stretch. <laughs> I was trying to learn how to be a poet, and I transferred from a college that I hated to Columbia University. I was searching for something in poetry that I had only caught glimpses of. It had to do with what poets call the image. Now we know that an image is a reproduction of something that exists, or the imagining of something that doesn't exist. Soon I found myself engaged in a serious private study of the imagist movement in Anglo-American poetry, the experiments led by T.E. Hulme in London. Not much of a poet, but a great theoretician. Then Ezra Pound arrived in London from the US, and the small group of poets clustered around Hume had a first-rate poet and theoretician who was ready to formulate their ideas, add some of his own, and do battle for them. The image that the imagists were talking about wasn't simply what some call poetic presentation, the green car stood in the driveway. It was metaphor that they were after. The green car grew more branches and leaves every night as it sat in the driveway. The image then is a tool of transformation that creates a third reality out of the two realities that contribute to it. It is, in essence, a vision. In those days, I was reading poetry furiously. And to New York, I had brought with me Dylan Thomas and his extraordinary metaphor making. I fellowed sleep who kissed me in the brain, let fall the tear of time, the sleeper's eye, Shifting to light turned me on like a moon. So, planning healed, I flew along my man and dropped on dreaming and the upward sky. I soaked myself in Thomas's recordings, and much later I discovered his connections to the British Surrealist movement, well underway in the 1930s. And as I got to know the campus and Morningside Heights poets, 
One or more of them must have told me about French surrealism. My friend, the poet Michael O'Brien, I suspect, was the first. Poet Kenneth Koch taught at Columbia then, and I was able to take a couple of his courses. I was the only GI on Saipan, he, he later told me, with a subscription to View magazine, a surrealist magazine published in New York City from 1940 to 1947. I was also lucky enough to find mentors in Serge Gavronsky, a poet, translator, and novelist at Barnard College, and Leroy Brunig, who taught in the graduate department of French at Columbia. All I could find in the Columbia Library was a single anthology of surrealism, but it was a start. Somewhere around then, Edition Gallimard began to publish lovely, inexpensive editions of many of the surrealist poets in paperbacks that were easy to slip into your pocket and carry anywhere. Paul Eluard, Robert Desnos, André Breton, who I learned was the leader of the movement, Louis Aragon, Benjamin Perret, Antonin Artaud, and a phalanx of others, all likewise in search of images or metaphors, or call them what you will, that could scorch your face and shoot you to somewhere you never knew you could go. Someplace above the real, or beyond it. That's what the surrealist metaphor is supposed to do. Rocket you out of your shoes towards something marvelous. And though it seems paradoxical, the marvelous can be accomplished through almost anything. The places and objects and people that we see or fail to pay attention to every day. Breton thought that almost any two objects could be drawn together to create something extraordinary. Unlike his mentor, the poet Pierre Reverdy. The two terms of the image can't be too distant, he believed, or the metaphorical connection wouldn't hold. After the horrors of the first war, and out of the Dadaist movement that thumbed its nose at culture and art and reason and government and everything that seemed to contribute to the slaughter of so many. Something positive had to be built. Only so many poems and plays and works of art can be created that say, fuck you. Breton, who was steeping himself in Freud's work at that time, came to recognize phrases and images in his dreams and saw the possibility of joining them in spoken thought, as he called it. Working together, he and a poet from the Dada group, Philippe Soupeau, collaborated on a text that mixed poetic prose and poetry that would become the foundation stone of the new movement that rose out of the ashes of Dada to become surrealism, a term derived from a play by Guillaume Apollinaire called The Breasts of Theresius. The new text, published in 1919, or maybe in 1920, I forget, was called The Magnetic Fields. Here are some paragraphs from its first pages. Prisoners of drops of water, we're nothing but perpetual animals. We run in the noiseless cities, and the enchanted posters don't move us anymore. What good are these great fragile enthusiasms, these desiccated jumps for joy? We don't know anything but the dead stars. We look at their faces and we sigh with pleasure. Our mouths are drier than lost shores. Our eyes turn without object, without hope. 
There are only those cafes where we gather to drink those cool drinks, those watery cocktails, and the tables are stickier than those sidewalks where the dead shadows of our vigil have fallen. Sometimes the wind surrounds us with its great cold hands and pins us to trees beheaded by the sun. We all laugh, we sing, but no one feels his heart beating anymore. Excitement abandons us. The marvelous stations never shelter us. Their long corridors frighten us. Then, in order to live, we still have to smother these dull minutes, these centuries in rags. Once we loved the suns at year's end, the narrow plains where our glances flowed like those impetuous rivers of our youth. There are nothing but reflections in those woods, restocked with absurd animals, well-known plants. The cities we don't love anymore are dead. Look around you. There's only the sky and those great vague landscapes that we'll be better off detesting. With our fingers, we touch those tender stars that populate our dreams. They've told us that yonder there were prodigious valleys, wagon trains lost forever in that far west as boring as a museum. When the great birds take flight, they leave with a cry, and the streaked sky no longer resounds with their call. They pass above the lakes, the fertile marshes. Their wings push aside the two languid clouds. We aren't even allowed to sit down anymore. Immediately, laughter rises up, and we have to scream out all our sins. That's just a little piece of that book. Breton wrote amazing poems of his own. L'Union Libre, translated as Free Union, drew on the tradition of the blaison, a type of poem that celebrated the female body. So I'm going to read that. It's probably his most famous poem. My woman with her forest fire hair, with her heat lightning thoughts, with her hourglass waist, my woman with her otter waist in the tiger's mouth. My woman with her rosette mouth, a bouquet of stars of the brightest magnitude. With her teeth of white mouse footprints on the white earth. With her tongue of polished amber and glass. My woman with her stabbed Eucharist tongue. With her tongue of a doll that opens and closes its eyes. With her tongue of incredible stone. My woman with her eyelashes in a child's handwriting, with her eyebrows the edge of a swallow's nest. My woman with her temples of a greenhouse with a slate roof and steam on the window panes. My woman with her shoulders of champagne and a dolphin-headed fountain under ice. My woman with her matchstick wrists. My woman with her lucky fingers, her ace of hearts fingers, with her fingers of new mown hay. My woman with her armpits of marten and beech nuts, of midsummer night, of privet and angelfish nest, with her sea foam and floodgate arms, arms that mingle the wheat and the mill. My woman with rocket legs, with her movements of clockwork and despair. My woman with her calves of elder tree pith. My woman with her feet of initials 
with their feet of bunches of keys, with their feet of weaver birds taking a drink. My woman with her pearl barley neck, my woman with her val d'or cleavage, cleavage of a rendezvous in the very bed of the mountain stream, with her breasts of night, my woman with her undersea molehill breasts, my woman with her breasts of the crucible of rubies, with her breasts of the specter of the rose beneath the dew, my woman with her belly of the unfolding fan of days, with her giant claw belly, my woman with her back of a bird fleeing vertically, with her quick silver back, with her back of light, with her nape of rolled stone and damp chalk, and a glass, and a falling glass that's just been sipped. My woman with her hips like a skiff, with her hips of a chandelier and arrow feathers, and stems of white peacock plumes, her hips an imperceptible pair of scales, my woman with her buttocks of sandstone and asbestos, my woman with the buttocks of a swan's back, my woman with her buttocks of springtime, with her gladiolus sex, my woman with her sex of placer and platypus, my woman with her sex of seaweed and old-fashioned candies, my woman with her mirror sex, my woman with her eyes full of tears, with her eyes of violet armor and a speedometer needle, my woman with her savannah eyes, my woman with her eyes of water to drink in prison, my woman with her eyes of forests forever beneath the axe, with her eyes of sea level, air level, earth and fire. The surrealist who captured my heart, however, was Robert Desnos. Desnos was famous for his ability to speak poetry during the trance experiments that the group participated in for about a year until some members of the group started to chase each other with knives, Desnos among them. Here is one of Desnos's most beautiful poems from his poetic sequence called The Shadows. And this is called The Voice of Robert Desnos. So much like the flower and the current of air, like the waterway, like the shadows passing everywhere, like the smile glimpsed this amazing evening at midnight, so much like everything, happiness and sadness. It's yesterday's midnight lifting its naked torso above belfries and poplars. I'm calling those lost in the countryside, the old corpses, the young oaks just cut down, the shreds of fabric rotting on the ground and linen drying in farmyards. I'm calling tornadoes and hurricanes, tempests, typhoons and cyclones, riptides, earthquakes. I'm calling the smoke of volcanoes and cigarettes, the smoke rings of fancy cigars. I'm calling loves and lovers. I'm calling the living and the dead. I'm calling the gravediggers. I'm calling the murderers. I'm calling the executioners. I'm calling the pilots, the masons, the architects. I'm calling the flesh. I'm calling the one I love. I'm calling the one I love. I'm calling the one I love. 
Triumphant midnight unfolds its satin wings and lands on my bed. Belfries and poplars give in to my desires. Those over there collapse and those fall back. Those lost in the countryside find their bearings in finding me. The old corpses come back to life at my voice. The young oaks just cut down wrap themselves in greenery. The shreds of fabric rotting in the ground and on the ground flap at my voice like the flag of rebellion. The linen drying in farmyards clothes adorable women that I don't adore, who come to me, obey my voice, and adore me. The tornadoes spin around in my mouth. The hurricanes redden my lips if they can do it. The tempests snarl at my feet. The typhoons rumple my hair if they can do it. I accept the kisses of cyclone drunkenness. The riptides come to die at my feet. The earthquakes don't shake me, but make everything totter at my command. The smoke of volcanoes attires me in its vapors. And cigarette smoke perfumes me. And the smoke rings of fancy cigars crown me. The loved ones and the love pursued for so long find shelter in me. The lovers hear my voice. The living and the dead give in and wave to me the former coolly, the latter intimately. The grave diggers abandon partly dug graves and announce that I am the only one who can direct their nighttime labors. The murderers greet me. The executioners invoke the revolution, invoke my voice, invoke my name. The pilots use my eyes to navigate. The masons are seized with vertigo hearing me the architects leave for the desert. The murderers bless me. The flesh quivers at my call. The one I love does not listen to me. The one I love does not hear me. The one I love does not answer me. Um, Many of the Surrealists fled to other countries during World War II. Others stayed and worked for the resistance, like Desnos and Paul Elouard. Eventually, Des that's right, and Char. Eventually, Desnos was betrayed by a journalist. He died just after the liberation of Terezin, the ghetto and concentration camp in Czechoslovakia, where he had been held prisoner. Two Czech students recognized him from the photograph from the photographs that had appeared in Breton's book, Nadja, and tried to help, but he was too ill with typhus to be saved. He was 45 years old. This is probably Desnos's best poem from a sequence of love poems called A la Mysterieuse, which I've translated as to the one of mystery. I've dreamed of you so much. I've dreamed of you so much, you're losing your reality. Is there still time to reach that living body and kiss on that mouth the birth of the voice that's dear to me? I've dreamed of you so much that my arms used to crossing on my chest as I hug your shadow, couldn't fold themselves around the shape of your body, maybe. And faced with the actual appearance of what's haunted me, and ruled me for days and years, 
I would probably turn into a shadow. Oh, what a sentimental pair of scales. I've dreamed of you so much, there's probably no more time for me to wake up. I sleep standing up, my body exposed to all the appearances of life and love and you, the only thing that counts for me today. I'd probably reach for the first lips and face that came along, then your face and your lips. I've dreamed of you so much, walked so much, talked, slept with your phantom, that maybe there's nothing left for me to do but be a phantom among the phantoms and a hundred times more shadow than the shadow that strolls and will go on strolling cheerfully over the sundial of your life. I am going on, aren't I? Well, a couple more minutes. Breton, whom the Nazis would have loved to lay their hands on, fled to the United States and eked out a living as an, officer, as an announcer for the Office of War Information. A friend of mine who worked alongside him told me that he refused to read any copy which, in which the Pope was mentioned. <laughs> Many other surrealists made it to the US as well. Max Ernst, Yves Tanguy, Kurt Seligman, and André Masson among them. And as they made their way into the American art scene and its society, their influence left behind the beginnings of the New York School of Painting that included Robert Motherwell, Jackson Pollock, Arshil Gorky, Milton Avery, among others, which in turn had a marked influence on poets like Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, Barbara Guest, and James Schuyler. They became known as the New York School of Poetry, a group that has written its own chapter in our recent literary history. These were and are, Ashbery is still very much alive, poets who were deeply influenced by French literary and artistic surrealism. From the 20s, surrealism spread throughout Europe, inspiring groups in Belgium, Eastern Europe, Mexico, to which Benjamin Paré had immigrated, Martinique, Spain, Breton lectured in Barcelona two years before he published his Manifesto of Surrealism in 1924, Latin America, Egypt, and even Japan. English translations of Surrealist writings began to appear in American and British literary magazines in the 20s. And by the late 50s, Robert Bly, the poet, was beating the drum for a poetry of the unconscious though ultimately he repudiated French surrealism in favor of Spanish language surrealism, Lorca, Neruda, Vallejo, and others. The 60s and 70s saw the creation of, Chicago, of a Chicago group of surrealists led by Franklin Rosemont and his wife Penelope. To me, their efforts seemed to be a rehash of work that the French had done. Right now, there is some discussion, particularly among certain West Coast poets, of a neo-surrealism. At 16, the San Francisco poet Philip Lamantia had come to New York, showed his poems to Breton, and been given a job at VVV, or VVV, a surrealist magazine published during Breton's New York years. This is a voice that rises once in a 100 years, Breton said of Lamantia. But Lamantia published very little. 
And a promising surrealist poet named Pete Winslow, also based in San Francisco, died in his 30s of complications following surgery. Surrealism, however, had a tremendous impact on the poets of the Beat Generation, most notably on Allen Ginsberg. And there is a legion of Beat-derived surrealists all over the planet. I wish I could tell you what neo-surrealism is and who is in it, but it seems to include everyone. This is no surprise. In his third surrealist manifesto, written after Breton had thrown him out of the group, Robert Desnos put it this way. For surrealists, there is only one reality, complete, open to everyone. Surrealism has fallen into the public domain. Surrealist practice in poetry has made its way into American poetry for well over 80 years now. When everyone is a surrealist, no one has to be a surrealist. And there are precious few groups to join and no manifestos to sign. Poets can partake of the enormous gifts bequeathed in writing and in all the arts by the surrealists. And that's good enough for me. Thank you. Well, do you, no, I'll ask this question later. Um, does anyone have a handful of things they'd like to add to things that they've heard or questions they'd like to answer or like answered? No? There's, I'd, like the, hmm? I'd like to hear from the audience. I would too, but we have yes. a little more, we have a little extra time. I was going to ask the audience. I will ask the audience, but in the meantime, I thought, well, we still have the stage. Does anyone have anything to, to add or? Or question about all this? No, I think it's interesting. Well, we, well, we've only just, you know, we—I mean, we've read four poems out of twenty thousand. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's uh, daunting to to try to make such a selection, but um, um, go out there and get the books. <laughs> there are trans—I mean, that's an idea. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of translations out there that are well worth reading. Marianne's. And um, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a list outside. I think, I think the point is, there's a question. You know, and we can we can only possibly touch on a very small piece of it, which is what we've done today. So we've you know we've looked at the poetry, we've touched a little about the psychoanalysis, we've touched a little tiny bit on the art, but surrealism in so, has so many other aspects that, uh, that we can't it's possibly touch It's very big. To, yeah. Very very big. And and as several of us have mentioned, it's now diffused itself into the current of everyday life to the point where it means everything and nothing, but it still has a particular meaning and it still has a, a corpus of writings that remain relevant and that oddly enough translate in a number of cases very well. Um, although that's that's something you wouldn't think would be possible for automatic writing. Um, I mean, I guess if I have a question, I would, I would direct it to the two eminent Surrealist translators sitting right here in front of me, which I is... I can argue with... I, one <laughs> argument is the my woman. Of course, my woman, Breton, you know, my femme. So we, others, have translated it differently. I translate it as my beloved, so I don't go into the problem. You can't say my wife, because it was done for three different people at different times. So, you know, forget my wife. And my woman just gets right in, in my nerves. So I took it out of the random house of of French poetry because I didn't think my woman could work there. Well, I think it's interesting that um, I suppose it's the interwar poetry 
the poetry between the First World War and the Second World War, it's so full of love poems. I mean, amazing, rather right. amazing uh, for, a, for a huge movement like that. Or maybe it's because it was so particularly French. But uh, it, it is amazingly full of love and real, and real love, not just love poems. And also, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it's full of two things. It's full of love, but it's also full of despair. Yes. I mean, I think as we Thank listen you. to the poems that were read here tonight, there's this, you know, I think you mentioned oh, yeah. that, there's this core of real an desperate, yeah. she doesn't answer, I'm calling out, there's, you know, no matter what it is, even there's very little happy love in surrealism. Um, I think that there was a, a huge, love was, was valued above everything else. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, you know, sort of the core yeah. driver, the core emotion, but it never seems to work out very well. Well, does it? I mean, <laughs> sometimes it happens. <laughs> it seems to work out fairly well for Desnos, who had a lot of disappointments uh, and wrote a lot of great poems about his disappointments. But he um, he uh, married and uh, seemed to have a very uh, good marriage. And there's a, a heartbreaking letter that he wrote from um, I don't know if it was ter from Theresen or from Compiègne or. In Drancy, yeah. And um, it's just this heartbreaking letter about how everything's going to, you know, did you get the package I sent you? I got your package and so forth and so on. And uh, uh, what about my book that's, uh, that's in press now? And, um, you know, I promise you that we're going to have a wonderful life when we are able to get back together again. And it just, uh, just breaks your heart. But they, you know, that was a beautiful romance. Love is always full of love and despair. I mean, it's, you know, that's not, it's not unusual. Uh, it's just that the, as subject matter, uh, you know, s so much of the subject matter. Also, I think it's interesting that in a way it is so cheerful. It is also up. It has an up spirit to it, reg regardless of what it says. And it is optimistic. And that's perhaps the political situation that to begin with people were optimistic after the first world war I suppose it didn't last long but um, and, and there's something that makes us all laugh still when we when we hear some of these things and of course it's penetrated so deeply in, into society that we don't think of the stuff we do as a surrealist but as, as an abstract painter you know I sort of now realize Surrealism has been part of the landscape in my head since I was a child. If not for surrealism, and my paintings are not surrealist, none of this would happen. Um, it gave permission. And it gives a great freedom. It gives, it gives you freedom. Yeah. yeah, complete freedom. Yeah. Which well, is a question mark. If you think also later on, thinking of the beats now, you know, Kerouac discovered what he called spontaneous bop prosody. <laughs> and it was great, great, you know, which means just going, just hitting the page and going. And uh, Ginsburg later began to talk about first thought, best thought, although he was a big reviser like Breton. And uh, so there's a direct line from this automatic composition to just getting it on the page. Yeah. You know, playing the choruses like a tenor, tenor saxophone player. Yeah. There's a question right behind you, Anne Marie. Um, oh, sorry. sorry. Can that be passed around? Yeah, can we pass it around? It's, I think, better if we go there. 
Um, I think the idea that uh, if, if surrealism is everywhere, it's nowhere, or it has no meaning, is not at all the case, because... It, it, right, it, I know you didn't say it had no meaning, but um, the, I, there is so much rich material coming out now that refers, or in some senses longs to continue that tradition, or has a, you know, has a great desire to feel the same ecstasy that was felt during that period, which is felt continually. And there are a lot of um, recombinant poets, I would say, and artists who do the same kind of work without referring to that. And it's, as, of course, as rich and real and coming from the soul. You know, and you can even talk about not the automatic writing so much, but about things that John Cage started and Jackson McLow and people who were doing concrete work and pulling in aspects of Buddhism and aspects of jazz, which was considered spontaneous and is as spontaneous as, as speech or written word, which actually is automatic. I mean, all of our speech is automatic in the same manner. And, that, and there are so many levels of kind of longing and desire for the same fulfillment of love in this kind of um, augmented speech and augmented writing. And first of all, I have to thank you so much. These, the poetry was exquisite. Um, I, I haven't heard much of this work for 30, 40 years, and it just brings back the same openness that the Surrealists wanted to create. I was also in love with Breton's face. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you. It was beautiful. But it's continuing with absolutely the same level of passion now, all around the world. <laughs> and the Fluxus people, you know, related directly, Fluxus, the absolutely. Dada people related very directly as, as uh, children of the Surrealists. So. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for an interesting afternoon. It's uh, something I'm not really familiar with. But I wanted to ask, especially you, uh, the painter, uh, this question. Uh, about five or ten years ago, I got lucky, and I ran into Young's Red Book. And um, I assume that you folks uh, uh, maybe ran into it also. And uh, I wondered, the only uh, analyst you mentioned was Freud, and I, I just wondered if Jung had any influence on uh, this kind of poetry. I really don't know. I know Jung's Red Book. I mean, I've, I've run into it, as you said, because I have friends who are Jungian analysts, but I, I haven't run across any mention of Jung in my reading about the Surrealist painters. Yeah, I, I, in his huge book, uh, I don't know how many plates there are of his uh, paintings of his dreams. I think there are a lot of them. Yeah. It's a huge book. And that's what I was thinking of, uh, but no one mentioned his name. Well, he did a lot. He made miniature villages. He did, he did all sorts of artistic things himself. But I don't know if he had any influence. In well, I, I think one thing. Um, you know, Jung, Jung and Freud, of course, had split uh, fairly early on. And you don't really find many mentions of Jung in surrealist writings. The 
Freud sort of got in there early, uh, you know, which, which I think is an important point to make because Breton was somebody who, you know, brilliant as he was, as creative a mind as he was, was kind of known for taking bits and pieces of the work that he read and, and then running with it. This was the case with Freud, this was the case with Hegel, who he also claimed as a great, as a great formation, this was the case with Marx. But if you actually look with what, what Breton wrote about Freud, Hegel, and Marx, it's not a deep analysis. It's, it's picking and choosing the bits and pieces that can serve his own purpose. His use of Freud was really fairly superficial when you get down to it. You know, Breton was not a great Freudian scholar. He was someone who had been deeply excited by the discovery of Freud's uh, early theories, and especially his, um, his, his work with dreams and, and with the automatic states, uh, which, was also came, which also came from uh, um, uh, you know, some, some of the other early psychoanalysts, uh, but, but Freud in particular. And I don't know that his use and analysis of psychoanalysis went so far as to penetrate into variant forms or the other people. You know, really Freud was sort of where his focus was. And because it was where his focus was, it tended to be where, where the other surrealist focus was. Uh, Jung is a name that comes in, I, I can't really even think of, of times oh, that it was mentioned. He did come in through Bachelard, who was called the philosopher of surrealism. And Bachelard was, of course, very influenced by Jung. And from that, it got and the whole Picasso-Jung thing yeah. that is talked about but Bachelard, is very course, strong. But Bachelard was a philosopher, and he was more yeah. surrealism. Yeah. So, yeah. But he was called the philosopher of surrealism. Yeah. I love that. Also, the Red Book was only published in the last few, few sure. years. That's true. So but nobody saw those. Uh, the, the family guarded uh, that manuscript uh, sure. with great uh, yeah. fervor. And um, uh, the other question, and you, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have to go back and, and look at the, uh, when did the translations of Jung start appearing in French, for example, because mm -hmm. not everybody spoke and read all of the European languages. And um, I don't think that uh, Freud, uh, I don't think, excuse me, that Jung starts appearing in translation until maybe the late 20s. Uh, which would be, you know, the, 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 the horse was already out of the chute in no. terms of Freud. But Freud was not that much earlier. Freud only started in 1920, the first French translations, and then continued on through the 20s. But he had the grip. He had the grip. He had the grip on them. And, and well, I got to read this other guy, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in many ways, Jung is, Jung is in many ways more, more, more appropriate to surrealism than Freud is. Yes, uh, yeah. Freud said he was, Jung sort of was. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Very but again, those weren't available until the last few that. years. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you so much for your good words and your passion for this. Uh, I have a, a question that's more about present day. If like Breton was sitting in the chair right now and he could be present and say, well, what does this mean today? I'd like to just ask you, I'm very much taken by the nature of like what is imagination. They were like Breton, a higher level of consciousness, exploring human potentiality, creation, meaning. So when imagination, some people say it's a more holistic, creative, open-ended, your brain is creating your imagination, where else could it come from? But it's holistic, it has a sense of innate beauty, you share it, you include it. Northrop Fry, one of the few people who wrote a book about it, said, imagination creates a bridge that allows emotion and intelligence to form together to create meaning. So I was wondering, with all the, the background that you have, 
of how would you understand or explain what is imagination as a form of consciousness? And is there any way that you can imagine we can create some understanding to promote those better ideas to get out of the locked up, you know, thinking, thinking, which eliminates emotion, which you cannot create meaning without? Uh, I'm just throwing it out to you. Whatever you can come up with, I'd appreciate it. That's Great a, idea that's for a, the panel. Yeah, that's right. a hard one, yeah. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. Does anyone have anything to say? It's a vast, uh, it's a vast subject. And um, uh, in terms, uh, just to hark back to the idea of the metaphor, uh, Pierre Reverdy, one of the great 20th century French, French poets and, and a, a kind of a mentor to Breton, at least intellectually, he said, the metaphor, the image flies in on its own wings. And Breton is at great pains to point out, you can't sit down and think up a really good metaphor. It either comes or it doesn't. And in fact, you can go back and read Aristotle, and it's, this idea is right there in Aristotle. So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a vast subject and a great one. And uh, you know, what is the imagination? Uh, and I, I think there have been a number of answers to it. But in, in the Surrealist case, I think you know, for one thing, uh, Breton was a pure product of French bourgeois rationalist society. And that was the, the uh, enemy that he fought against his entire life, was Greco-Roman logic, was his, that was, that was the main target. And so the entire uh, enterprise of surrealism, whether through you know, its, its brief flirtation of interest in Buddhism through, through Artaud or, you know, or, or psychoanalysis or whatever it might be, was to, to allow the conditions, create the conditions for which you could open your mind to the flood of images that would come in and not constantly try to filter or not constantly try to eliminate the ones that didn't make sense or the ones that didn't seem to conform to some arbitrary rule of what images should be, that all of it was valid and all of it was, was, um, was useful. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, a curious thing because surrealism itself as, a, as an entity, as a movement, was actually heavily regulated. Uh, Breton himself was, was a great theorist of the liberty of thought, the freedom of thought, and at the same time was an enormously controlling. He was a real control freak. Uh, and so there's a, in a way, you could almost say it's the tension between the two that actually produced that spark that allowed surrealism to last as, a, as an active movement for something like 50 years. And it was, it was um, interesting and probably not that surprising that shortly after his death in 1966, his handpicked successor, who you know was in every way as, as forceful and dynamic as, as Breton was, a man named Jean Schuster, tried to keep the movement going. And there were two things, curiously enough, that finally put an end to it uh, three years later in 69. One of them was the May 68 riots, because the surrealists felt that it had, it had actually gotten out of their, it, it, had, it had passed them by, that, that the students and, uh, were using surrealist ideas and putting scrawling surrealist slogans on the walls. And they felt that you know, this thing that we've created has now just completely steamrolled over us. We have no, we have no further place in it. Um, that was one. And the other one was the fact that Schuster realized that without Breton there as a kind of a force, a, just a personal force that could hold all the little factions together in that group, it just fell apart. There was no one there who could, who could keep it going anymore. There was no one there who had the, the force of personality. So on the one hand, you've got this wonderful 
call to freedom and to you know the the, the primacy of love and 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 absolute imagination sort of cemented against you know or, or sort of laminated to this this um, this other need and and will toward real regulation and oddly enough that that was the energy that kept it going but you will have one, one statement of Breton the imaginary tends to become the real kind of wonderful I just like to throw out that 3,000 years ago you know where there is no vision the people will perish mm -hmm. and Jung said image is everything I mean human potentiality is presented in the form of an image a word is just a name for an object it doesn't mean anything but Jung said it might unfortunately take 600 years for the rest of the world to catch on so thank you thank you um, well, I was also very glad to hear all of this. I'm a painter and also art historian, and I've been interested in this subject for a long time, starting with the symbolists, with Baudelaire and Rimbaud and Mallarmé, and I'm very interested in the relationship to the painters because e earlier on, but even later, um, uh, Bonnard and Brock and Matisse were very allied with the poets. There's no particularly with Brock and Reverdy, and uh, Matisse even began to speak about his world of signs. And what I'd like to ask is, uh, did the poets use this word signs, or was it more from the phenomenologists and Bachelard and the, the philosophers of France that brought up the concept of signs, or does it go back to Baudelaire? Uh, because Matisse, but particularly now that his cutout show is there, uh, you can see uh, how he transposed this concept of signs into visual signs. So I just want to ask a little bit about that, you know, the relation, if you know anything about the relationship with the painters and the word signs, was, did that, does that come up in the language with the poets? Well, the Miro and the Miro and Breton, the Constellation, and, you know, Miro and the sign, very big there. But Mark probably can go on from. No, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the relationship with the with the painters between the painters and the poets was, um, I mean, historically, it's actually rather rather interesting and rather difficult one because, um, as Henry pointed out, at first there was a kind of a Breton had actually initially begun by saying that saying that there could be no such thing as surrealist painting. And, and sort of had, had eliminated the idea of a visual surrealism at the very beginning of the, of the movement and was partly pushed into having to then make a theoretical statement, which of course became Surrealism in Painting, a book that he started in 1928 as an essay and eventually was added to throughout the rest of his life. You know, a major statement about what visual surrealism is, but oddly enough, it was, it was sort of arm twisted a little bit into, into making that statement because um, the, because one of the other members of the group had actually started making statements about visual surrealism and I think that that, that kind of forced him to, to take a stand on it. Um, and also, honestly, it was a way of bringing some of the painters who he found interesting into the, into the group as well. Uh, you know, he'd been fascinated by Max Ernst from back in the Dada days. Uh, he was interested in Miro very early on. He was interested in Masson. He was interested. Picasso was someone that he courted all of his life, uh, who never really joined Surrealism, but was always kind of a, a friendly fellow traveler. Same with Duchamp. Uh, you know, it was a way of kind of creating a, a visual corpus that would be complementary to the the written corpus uh, of, of Surrealism. I'm not sure that that quite answers your question, but. Yeah. 
the symbolist poets. I mean, Mallarmé and, and Bonnard were good friends, and they would see each other every day, and they would talk there. I mean, there was a lot of communication at a certain point, particularly in the late 19th century. And so I think it's a continuum, really. Uh, and I wondered how the surrealists saw themselves in relationship to the symbolists, because they really start a lot of this, Baudelaire well, and Rimbaud and sure. Mallarmé. And, 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 and Breton yeah. was a huge admirer of Mallarmé. Mm -hmm. And was and he knew Paul Valéry personally. He was uh, I mean he was younger, but he he went to see Valéry as a young man as a kind of a, a guarantor and a, and a mentor for his own poetry. Um, he knew of the you know of the Mallarmé's gatherings. He knew a number of the symbolist poets uh, you know early in the in the century. Uh, and in fact, his his first poems are basically symbolist poems. I mean, really before the war, the earliest poems that Breton wrote and published were good classical symbolist poetry. Uh, and so he was very aware of the, of the relationships between the poets and the painters. Uh, in fact, the, um, uh, I think it was, it was Mallarmé's daughter. When he, was, when he was in Nantes as a soldier, as a, as a medical orderly, he lived for a little while with Mallarmé's daughter and her husband, uh, and they, were able to tell him all kinds of stories about, you know, the relationship with Manet and, you know, and all of that. So, I mean, he was, he was quite aware of it. And yes, the Surrealists in their, the writer's dealings with the painters is very much of a continuum in, in French how life. How distinguish themselves from symbolism? And how would you call the, what is the bridge or what is the difference between, you would say, Surrealist poetry and the earlier Symbolist movement? Well, I mean, symbolism, I think, you know, it was, it was very controlled and it was very precious by nature. It really tried to pull away from, from life. Uh, and I think that there was something in that, I, I think that there was something in the conscious rejection of the outside world that Breton liked. But it was also, you know, it was like hothouse flowers. I mean, they're very self-contained. and. Then the war came along, and you just couldn't do that. And I think that the the experiences of the war and his meeting also with uh, certain people during the war, and particularly this young man named Jacques Vacher, who's sort of one of the you know the patron saints of early surrealism, um, and who just had a completely different way of disdaining the world. It was much brasher. It was much more much more violent in a way. And I think that that really turned Breton's head around. And that's when you start seeing the poetry come take completely different different attitudes. His discovery of Rambeau was another one, that there was this kind of, you know, a, a much more sar sarcastic and sardonic uh, way of, 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 of disdaining the world. So I think that what interested him in, in symbolism was the fact that they had pushed the world away, but there was a little bit of an ivory tower aspect to it. And what this did was allow you to get back into the streets, but disdain the world at the same time in a, in a slightly more aggressive way. The futurists have helped uh, push it more into the, the, the violence of contemporary life, or would they have played a role, Marionetti, at all? Well, well they certainly knew yeah. Marionetti, but I think that was, they were a little bit of a rival as well, the, the futurists, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they didn't get along too well. <laughs> no.
and thoughtful people, and who claimed connections also to various yogis that were in Paris and London and Germany between the wars, who would, who would garner uh, audiences of thousands of people. And um, uh, Kandinsky went to those things, Clay went to those you know, the meetings, and they were all, they all knew what everybody else was doing. The Dadaists were, you know, from Lithuania, were aware of the Dadaist movements in Romania, and you know, and all across the board, they were centered in Switzerland. They were in close contact with Breton, and their ideas and their interest in psychoanalysis was enormous. They always talked about it, but they they did it through visual means. They they were excavating through their own uh, their own sources and their own needs. But it was certainly done visually as much as it was done poetically, as much as it was done. And you did, I don't know if you mentioned music, but there was. I mean, I mentioned it, but he, but uh, but don't didn't allow it. Right. And it's right. really it's incomprehensible. Yeah, but, <laughs> and we already had we already had settee. Ted Sean and whatever her name is, I can't think of her, the, his partner were doing that in dance in the 1920s in Paris. And well, we, we all agree that it's a, it was yeah. very widespread it's movement. It's enormous. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think I it depends. Say, yeah. I just yeah. want to add one thing because Jung apparently disavowed a connection with the thought forms. With you know, he was not at all interested in that, and a lot of his. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll, I'll just say very quickly that um, you know it depends on how you define the word surrealist. There's surrealism as a as a current, and there's surrealism as a movement. And there were two things that you touched upon there that I think would have been absolute anathema to Breton himself. One of them was religion, or anything that that smacks of organized religion. And the other thing was music, which he just personally could not stand. Let the it was music, the which, yes. he, which he personally couldn't stand. Now, why? But so it's past four o'clock. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun.